Welcome to the Social Policy Connections audio podcast. The following podcast features a lecture delivered by Robert Fitzgerald, AM, at Social Policy Connections Churches and Public Policy Conference, held at the Abbotsford Convent on July the 19th, 2011. Robert Fitzgerald is a full-time commissioner with the Australian Government's Productivity Commission, where he leads the current inquiry into caring for older Australians and the commissioned study examining the workforce of the early childhood development sector. And now, here is Robert Fitzgerald. Good. Well, I must say it's a great uh, joy and a great privilege to be here today. I have to say um, that it is always a pleasure to be in in Melbourne. I'm here um, on a few occasions, but uh, none more pleasant than in this particular environment. And I also acknowledge not only um, the recent history of this site, but the Indigenous people that once lived here and the Elders, both past and present, as we gather on their land today. How could I possibly say no to a conference that uses the words social justice, public policy, human well-being, church and faith-based stuff? For a very long period of my uh, adult life, at least, these have been core uh, to my existence and core to my being. And even though um, today I'm employed by the Australian Government in the Productivity Commission, um, I come to speak to you as an individual, not on behalf of that organisation, but I speak as an individual absolutely committed, as you are, to these issues. Today I really want to say that we should be optimistic. Now, I know in Australia it is almost impossible to believe that one should be optimistic, given that no-one else talks in those terms. We seem to be in a sea of negativity, a sea of self-destruction, a sea of delusion about our state in the world and our state as peoples. And yet, nevertheless, we should be optimistic. Um, I am by nature optimistic. People say foolhardy in that optimism. But I have good basis for that. I have good basis for a number of reasons. Firstly, the faith-based organisations from which you come are by nature at their heart optimistic organisations. They are optimistic because the message of the gospel and the faith that we believe is one of ultimate optimism. It is one that believes in a life after death but it also believes in a life better in the world in which we live today. And so, in a sense, that faith inspires us based on a vision of hope and optimism. Secondly, history is on our side. Now, again, I'll try and demonstrate that in the Australian context shortly. But if we are fair income in terms of examining our history, we are a country that has achieved extraordinary things both for the disadvantaged and the less disadvantaged in our community. And at the centre of that has been church and faith-based organisations. The successes far outweigh the failures. The movements forward far outweigh the regressions. And today we are a better society in many ways. Um, Thirdly is because going forward, I believe absolutely that we have the wit and the wisdom to be able to construct a better world. And you believe that as well, otherwise you wouldn't waste your time being here. But how we do that, the issues we have to confront and the techniques we need to apply to achieve that are the challenges. If we were sitting back here in the 1830s at the commencement of the state of Victoria and a bit earlier in the state of New South Wales, we would be talking about issues of poverty. We would be talking about hunger, lack of housing, 
poor health and poor education of those most disadvantaged. We would be talking about the issues of child neglect. Later on, a hundred years on from that, we would be talking about the issues of fair wages. And yes, we would be starting to confront the issues of immigration. Today, we probably use a different language. We talk about social exclusion or social inclusion. We talk about participation in society, largely through the lens of workforce. We talk now about climate change, environment and ecology. We do talk more about Indigenous wellbeing and welfare. We talk about issues concerning the age, those with disabilities. We talk about housing affordability. Through all of that history, however, the three common themes are there. The first is poverty. Poverty is at the root of why we are here today. Poverty, in its various forms, has been a feature of the Australian community and continues to be a feature of that community. We don't use that word often, and there was a period in recent history where governments refused to use that term at all. Nevertheless, it is one of the central themes of Australia. Secondly is the notion of injustice and inequality. If we look at some of these issues, and we'll look at some in more detail, we see that the heart is a concern about inequality in Australia, not only in terms of wealth, but access to the very things that make society worthwhile. Today we talk of those, as I said, in different language, particularly in the language of social inclusion. And the third feature in that whole period has been the influence of faith-based organisations and churches. From the arrival of the first cleric in 1788 in, in Sydney right through to the present time. And so poverty, injustice and churches have all been together at the same time. If I can just go back a little bit and just take a, a bit of historical perspective, and I'm no historian, and many of you are in this room, there was a book produced some years ago back in the um, late 1980s by Brian Dickey, and he wrote a book called No Char Charity There, A Short History of Social Welfare in Australia. And he maintained that Australia had been through three fundamental phases, one of charity, one of welfare, and one of assistance. And today I suspect the fourth one is the notion of well-being. And I'll come back to that. He looks at the various portions of time. And this is important if we're trying to understand public policy today. We need to understand where we've been. In the period of 1788 to 1850, largely before Victoria was established, I might say, it was a convict era where governors ruled by command. And he goes on to say a jail was the dominant concern where alternative forms of economic activity struggled to exist. He said the responsibility for social welfare was either institutionalised in government action or haltingly expressed in public societies, a general hospital, orphanages, rudimentary lunatic asylums and benevolent societies formed the principal categories of actions. Now most interesting in that period of time was the formation of an organisation that I'm now on the board of directors of and vice president in New South Wales, the Benevolent Society. It was formed in 1813, the earliest charity known in Australia. And interesting, this was an organisation promoted by Governor Macquarie at the time. And he called upon seven men then, seven um, um, men of a Christian faith, to form an organisation to look after the destitute. This was a group at that stage that were missionaries and doing work in the neighbouring islands and in Tahiti. And they were actually called... New South Wales Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge and Benevolence in These Territories and the Neighbouring Islands. 
And so it is interesting that even back in that period, back in the early 1800s, the formation of the colonies well before Victoria was founded, we are already seeing the links of church and people of faith integrally involved in the, as in the provision of support for the destitute, supported by, in fact, the government at that time, the governor. He then talks about the period between 1835 and 1890, if I can talk about that. And it's intriguing what he says. And, of course, in that time, Western Australia, South Australia, Queensland all came into fruition. He said, these were the years in which laissez-faire capitalism or free trade became the dominant form of social relationship and liberal individualism the moral theory on which it was based. In coping with the vulnerable in this period, charity was the label and public societies the approved method of action. Charity was selective and narrowly personal in applications. It's also the period where we have immigration of many congregations from various churches into Australia. The landscape became cluttered with people from Ireland in particular and France and other areas into the Australian scene. It was the institutional churches that started to take a very predominant role in the welfare in Australia. But it was in the environment then of laissez-faire capitalism and free trade. We tend to think this is a modern construct. In fact, in the Australian history, it is a long-lived one. Then we move to another period, the 1890s through to 1949. Again, if I can quote him, he says, in these years, capitalism and individualism were under challenge as the dominant ideology of Australian society. The principal alternative to emerge was radical liberal doctrine of universal rights. It founded its expression in state programs of childcare, aged and invalid pensions, in widespread debate over responsibility of healthcare, and in the rapid, enthusiastic adoption of the notion of the basic wage. Socialist interpretations of social problems, goals and policies were also keenly debated at that time. And it is in this period, up to the 1950s, that we see the first move by institutional churches of actual advocacy in relation to social justice issues, having moved from simply the provision of services for the destitute and for those in great need we started to see advocacy, and the first illustration of that was in relation to fair wages, the labour cases. And this, of course, in a sense, came largely from the Catholic social teachings, which was after the famous uh, encyclical Rerum Novarum, which was about the dignity of worker. And this period was also a period where we saw more formalised lay organisations associated with churches starting to develop, including bodies like the St Vincent de Paul Society, which were established in the 1890s and beyond in this country. Then the last period, and he says in, in his particular text, 1949 to 1986, during this period, capitalism, having overcome the challenges posed by depression, war, and he says the Labor Party, regained dominance both economically and politically in Australian society. The compromise in the field of social welfare was to accept the notion of rights to universal assistance in a limited range of categories of need. The state had become the principal engine of prosperity of the middle class, its role being to sustain and maintain a capitalist economy. This was also a very interesting period because it's the first time that we actually see faith-based organisations come together in a collaborative and collective way. It's not surprising that in the 50s was the establishment of the Councils of Social Service 
And in fact, ACOS itself was formed by a group of five or six religious-based, faith-based organisations at that time. Most people tend to think ACOS was forever secular, and in fact, that was not its origins at all. We started to see absolutely the advent of legitimate advocacy. We saw a period of greater relationship between government and, in fact, the not-for-profit sector, particularly with the advent of the Whitlam government. And we started to see extensive funding by the government, particularly in the areas of housing for homeless people, housing for the aged, and so on and so forth. So that was an interesting period. If you look at those, the three themes, charity, welfare, and assistance. So the question is, what now? If I just go back a little bit about the advocacy for a moment, which started to move through the 1950s, what were those themes that started to emerge? The dignity of the human person. That is that the human person is the foundation of a moral vision for society. We saw the enunciation of the common good, the common being, good being the sum of those conditions of social life which allow social groups and their individual members access to their own fulfilment. That notion of the common good was really promulgated in the mid-60s. We saw the notion of the preferential option for the poor being articulated by various Christian faiths in a very strong way. The churches had been with and of the poor, particularly the Catholic faiths and some of the others in Australia. They were born out of those particular groups, the dirt poor Irish. Irish. But here we are actually talking about institutional church and congregations being involved with that. We saw the notion of economic justice in the 1960s being articulated. We saw the issue of, of, of the promotion of peace. Peace and justice started to, in fact, arise as significant issues in the public discord in that period. Later, much later, were the notions of participation and much later the notion of stewardship of creation, ecology and environment, came into the fore. So by the time we reached our period, the post-1980s, 85 period, the middle period, we already started to see a rich, a very rich dialogue between the community and faith-based organisations and its influence on public policy. Up until that point, it is fair to say that the not-for-profit sector in particular, faith-based and others, believed that it was in some form of partnership with government. Indeed, as I indicated from the very beginning, the very first charity was formulated at the behest of the government. From the 1980s on, it is true that that notion of partnership has virtually disappeared. I've given many speeches, but I always refer to a, a, a speech that was given when I was in, at an Asian conference by somebody heading up the ILO, the International Labour Organisation. He said, I don't understand the non-government sector. He said, they endlessly talk about partnerships with government. He said, I've never once struck a government that wants to be in partnership with anybody. They want to govern. That's what they're there for. And he said, this is a nonsense that's only in the mind of the non-profit sector. Well, as it turned out, for at least the next 20 years, that proved to be true. What were the dominant features of our era, this era? The firstly, was an increasing belief that market-based solutions had a more relevant role in, in fact, alleviating poverty and disadvantage and, in fact, creating a better environment for the development of human well-being. 
We saw the notions of personal responsibility increase under various guises, whether we call it um, mutual obligation, shared responsibility. But the notion that the person was more responsible for their own well-being than, in fact, the state or other organisations became um, a current paradigm. We noticed that the emphasis was all about economic prosperity. And coming from the Productivity Commission, this is something that we would continue to aspire to today. We also saw the emergence of green issues, genuine concern about ecological issues, genuine concern about environment, and more recently about issues of climate change. But it was also an odd period, because at the very same time that we were talking about market-based solutions, personal responsibility, economic prosperity, what did we see? We see the extraordinary explosion in middle-class welfare and dependency. Australia today has a middle-class welfare that was uncontemplated, even by the most hardened person on the left, years ago, because we accepted this notion of universality. Today, Australia is about to roll out an early childhood program for children under the age of um, school age attendance. And its main feature is universality, that all children under the age of five will attain 15 hours of preschool before they enter school. One example, we have universal health care, we have universal access to aged care effectively, and so on and so forth. So as a funny phenomenon, we had this ideology. Some would say the ideology, of course, was only applied to those most in need. The notion of personal responsibility was most played out in relation to the unemployed. Um, the notion of personal responsibility was most played out in those that were on welfare and deemed to be not handling the circumstances of their children well. And today we have um, mandatory income management being discussed. So in a strange way, these philosophies were at play, but at the same time, Australians became even more wedded to the notion of universal entitlement. It is true that we don't have the same system in terms of welfare as Europe does. We still remain, have, in terms of welfare, um, a basis um, in part based on need and, um, and uh, financial circumstances. But today, there has been a very significant shift, and that is the fourth phase. If we accept that Brian Dickey was correct, that there was charity, welfare, assistance, what we now have is the notion of well-being. And your title is about enhancing human well-being. This is an area in which you should be absolutely optimistic. This year I've had the pleasure of speaking to the bishops of the Anglican Church, the leadership of the Salvation Army and many other groups. And it is fair to say that I am more optimistic about their future than they are. Uh, I, I, and there is a reason for this. Throughout the world, and there are people in this audience who understand this better, 15, 10 to 15 years ago we started to see a dialogue around the notion of social capital. Social capital was an exceptionally important concept. What was it? Well, in the Victorian Health publication in January of 2005 it said this, social capital is a term used to describe the particular features of social relationships within a group of community. It includes such things as the extent of trust between people, whether they have a shared understanding of how they should behave towards each other and care for one another, and the extent of participation in civic organisations. 
that notion, that dialogue, was fundamentally about restoring to society the notion of relationships based on trust and reciprocity. Those two concepts are at the heart of a well-functioning society, trust and reciprocity. We moved forward in Australia to a further notion, the notion of social inclusion. Now again, you can argue whether or not this has been a successful agenda, but it certainly remains a principal objective of the current government and state governments. What is that defined as? David Capo, the Social Justice Commissioner in South Australia, said in 2002 it is basically this. A socially inclusive society is defined as one where all people feel valued, their differences are respected, their basic needs are met so that they can live in dignity. Social exclusion is the process of being shut out from social, economic, political and cultural systems which contribute to the integration of a person into the community. If we just take those concepts, you will see that what is in social capital as a concept and social inclusion as an agenda is the re-establishment of relationships based on respect, based on trust, based on connectedness, based on the recognition of human dignity that we all have. Significantly throughout the world, many organisations, including in Australia, are trying to develop indicators of well-being. These indicators of well-being or of happiness in some places give us a new insight into what, what really is human well-being. Up until more recent times, we as a society have judged our own well-being on a very narrow indicator. In Australia, and particularly in the 70s, 80s and 90s, we've used GDP per head of population as the single most important measure to define whether or not Australia and other nations are enhancing their well-being. GDP per head of population is in fact the measure of living standards. And for so long as that measure continued to increase, we believed that human well-being was advancing. Indeed, it was critical and central to all of government policies over the last two to three decades. But today, all institutions, including Commonwealth Treasury and our own organisation, now recognise that whilst that remains an exceptionally important indicator, it is an insufficient indicator. Today, throughout the world, we are trying to understand what are the indicators that tell us whether or not societies and communities, and I suggest individuals, are in fact advancing their human circumstances. This is a work in progress, and for as much as good is about it, there is a whole lot of stuff that is also very problematic and dangerous with it. Dangerous because people are trying to do too much with it. Dangerous because people are trying to make a robustness in these measures to, me to, to counter or to be similar to that of economic indicators and will often fail to be able to achieve that and bring into disrepute some of these concepts. Nevertheless, they are absolutely critical. So if we're looking at human well-being in Australia, going back to the early days, we would have measured it in very important terms, in terms of access to housing, affordable housing, access to education, access to adequate food, access to water, all of those sorts of things, all of which remain important today. 
And if you look at the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, they have a welfare and wellbeing indicator which picks all those up. Issues in relation to income, disposable income, is critically important. If you look at the report that um, I'm responsible for, which is the report on overcoming Indigenous disadvantage in Australia, which is produced by, on behalf of the nine governments every two years, you will see we use those sorts of indicators. There are seven strategic areas of actions. We look at access to health and education. We look at access to housing and so on and so forth. But that only took us part of the way. So what are some of the domains of wellbeing? Some of them are these. A sense of self. An individual has a sense of themselves, who they are, where they fit, and a sense of confidence that they themselves are valued and important. Consumption. The ability to be able to consume, to acquire goods and services, is a very important element of well-being. There's no beauty in being poor, but one of the reasons being poor is a problem is that it distracts you um, from the ability to enjoy or denies you the ability to be able to enjoy uh, those things that others are able to enjoy. A third one is engagement in meaningful activity. People that are actively engaged in other activity, meaningful activity, well-being is always seems to be enhanced. And there are proxy indicators that we use in the Indigenous communities for that. Let me give you an example of that. One of the most important elements in Indigenous communities is building resilience within communities. What is the measure for that? Well, the measure is a proxy. And the proxy measure for that is the active involvement in cultural and sporting programs. Why? Because if one is actually engaged with other people in an organised form of activity, be it cultural, arts or sports, it is likely to be a demonstration that the community has an inner strength. And where that dissipates and there is less active involvement in formalised sport, cultural or arts, it is less likely to have that level of resilience. The fourth domain of wellbeing is around connections, connectedness to others. Our ability to feel well about ourselves, good about ourselves, is absolutely related to our ability to connect with other people. The fifth one is the ability to exert influence. We enhance, we feel, our, we feel and are enhanced if we have an ability to exert influence. Very interesting in relation to workplace arrangements today that the single most important determiner of a staff member's well-being is whether or not they believe that they have some ability to influence the work that they actually do. And if they feel that they're empowered to make decisions in relation to their work, they're enhanced by it. But so too in our community. And the last is safety from personal harm. These six domains are domains of well-being. Now, why are they absolutely critical at the present time? is because they will reshape the way in which we measure the impact of the work that we do and the advocacy that we provide. Today, when we look at the Benevolent Society, for example, we ask the questions of people not simply whether or not they received the particular service, whether the service was provided in a satisfactory manner, but inbuilt into the quality evaluations now are questions about do you feel more secure in your community? Do you feel more empowered to make decisions? Do you feel more ability to exercise influence? These questions 
actually now inform our view as to whether or not we're achieving the outcomes for people. Today in Victoria, the Department of Planning and Communities, if it's currently called that, um, has a huge agenda in relation to trying to measure what is a strong community. It's groundbreaking work. Again, if you look at those questions, they are fundamentally questions that go to the domains of well-being. And so, this fourth period that we're in is in fact trying to come up with social policies and public policies that actually achieve these goals. Yes, they still continue to deal with the basics of human life, but they are now actually targeted to the person's sense of well-being and that of the communities. This agenda is absolutely kindred to those of the faith-based communities. If we look at the social teachings of various churches, if we look at the raison d'etre of faith-based organisations, what are they about? They are about the notion of subsidiarity, allowing the lowest level, including the individuals, to be able to exercise choice, to be able to make decisions that affect their own well-being. What are they all about? They're about the sense of community and connectedness, both within faith and beyond faith. They are absolutely central to the task of building communities, and some do it very badly, and some do it a little bit better. What are they also about? They're about trying to engage people, yes, in a faith-based activities, but much more than that. They're actually trying to enable people to be actively engaged in things that matter. It is about the, last, the sense of self. It is about the dignity of the individual. We use different language to describe those. This agenda, this wellness agenda and wellbeing agenda, for the first time in many years gives an entree for faith-based organisations that has not been present. It allows us to enter into a debate and to reshape that debate in a way that has not been present for other times. Yes, it doesn't use the cutting-edge language of justice and inequality, terms that I am always proud to use, but in government are almost non-existent. Nevertheless, you can start to move to those issues, those principles, through other means. And the social inclusion agenda, or the notion of participation, the social inclusion agenda of participation, allows us to start to talk about the plight of people that are refugees, indigenous people, people with disabilities, people on the margins of societies, because it allows us to talk about bringing them within the mainstream of society, respecting them as individuals, but also as citizens, also as part of the community. So my optimism is because there is now a shift, a significant shift, and yet most churches, certainly the institutional churches, fail to appreciate this window of opportunity. Blinded by their pessimism about their falling numbers in the pews, unless you're one of the evangelical churches, obsessed by sex and gender, distorted by rules and regulations, obsessed with authority and power, they are missing out on the most important opportunity that this nation has presented for the reaffirmation of the very things that are central to faith-based organisations. So my optimism is conditional on the ability of institutional churches and agencies to recognise this. In public policy terms, let me be very concrete, and I've deliberately not talked much about public policy. This is um, critical to able to influence public policy. I indicated to you that the Treasury and the Commonwealth is interested in this. It actually has an indicator of well-being, which it uses 
to in fact examine public policies against. Very interesting. Now you would think that is unfathomable, and yet it is. And the reason why it is, is the enhancement of well-being is not contrary to economic prosperity. Now it can be. Economic prosperity is a single goal in and of itself can be as destructive force as any single one dominant philosophy. But they are not in conflict all the time, and they needn't be. If we're talking about connectedness, if we're talking about community enhancing activities, then these things matter. Today in the public policy arena, and I've now done 14 national inquiries, you will start to see the notion of well-being used in many of those reports, albeit tentatively in some and more strongly in others. In the not-for-profit report, in the aged care report, in the disability care report, you will see those. But you will also start to see this emerge in the reports on the environment, very importantly. You'll start to see the notion of public benefit being broadened out in its concepts. In the notion of procurement, which is about value for money, we're starting to acknowledge absolutely that value for money can take into account the flow-on effects for society, the externalities, as the economists will talk about. And so in actually giving out tenders, you don't have to go for the lowest tender. You can actually go to a tender that, allows, that, that fully recognises the flow-on benefits and values of that particular organisation or agency having that contract. So this is not an ephemeral agenda. This is a real agenda affecting policy, affecting funding, affecting the way in which we measure the contribution of society as a whole. With public policy, therefore, the role of churches is critical. And your ability to be able to use this agenda, I think, is fundamental to how it will influence public policy going forward. Public policy at the moment, you might say, is in a perilous state. And there is cause for you to say that. But if you actually look at the policy reforms going through at the Commonwealth and other levels, there is again room for very great um, optimism. And we are seeing extraordinary reforms taking place, largely in the human services areas, in education and in health in the areas that I've referred to. Those matter. They affect the lives of the whole community, but they disproportionately affect the lives of the most marginalised, the most disadvantaged. Your ability to influence those agendas is absolutely going to be critical. But can I just conclude in a broader sense? The greatest challenge you have is in three ways. First is to recommit -re Australians and the Australian public policy agenda to a sense of optimism a sense that we can create a better world. You believe that, and hence you must be at the forefront of that. I do not understand why we abandon this territory to those that are more pessimistic than I and are more destructive than I, and we must not do that. The second is the re-establishment of trust and reciprocity as the underpinning and fundamental um, touchstones of public policy is critical. We have to have policies that entrench and build trust and reciprocity within our community. These are essential to going forward. And they're essential for a very practical reason. And that is more and more of the care that we need to provide to the community will have to be provided by the community itself. Let me just make one practical observation. Australia faces very sustained periods of labour shortages. 
critical labour shortages. The impact of those shortages are hardest felt in the human services areas, health, mental health, disability, aged care. We are rolling out models that assume an endless supply of labour. The not-for-profit sector is as guilty as government of doing this. They are not sustainable. The model that will need to emerge is a model in which we re-engage the community in its own well-being and welfare. The re-engagement of neighbour in supporting neighbour. Now, as improbable as that may seem, it is the only course forward. To do that, you need to have a society that trusts one another, trusts institutions, trusts neighbour. It needs to also be one that has a mutual respect for one another. It can only work if there is a high level of trust and reciprocity. So out of necessity, we will need this. The last one of my final comment, otherwise they're going to gong me well and truly, is to re-establish and reassert the notion of the common good. The common good is a concept that is at the heart of the gospel message. It has been articulated by most churches many times and in different ways since that time. Today we need public policy that is genuinely in the common good, genuinely about the overarching well-being of society as a whole. That would be the single greatest contribution that the faith-based organisations in Australia could achieve if they were able to ensure that public policy were once again framed having regard to the common good. Thanks very much.